Welcome to episode 416 with my guest, Courtney Hameister. Uh, my name is Paul Gilmartin. This, uh, this here is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. It's a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Mentalpod, also the uh, social media handle. You can follow me uh, or the show at. Got some good stuff today. Really love this interview with Courtney. It was recorded about mm, uh, four months ago, maybe. Something like that, but I really, uh, I really like it. And it's interesting. We talk about CBD oil in, uh, in the episode and I had not really heard of it before. And between the time I recorded this and today, um, I have started taking it at night to help me sleep. And it's, it's just, it's working great. And, um, yeah. And I am still in that relationship. I think I'd been in it like a week. When we talked about the relationship that, um, obviously, <laughs> give me a chance to warm up here, huh? Don't jump down my throat. We got some great surveys. Um, a really cool thing we posted on uh, Patreon just now is a beautiful correspondence by email between a listener and... Uh, and Teresa Strasser. Teresa's episode is from the first year, um, part of the back catalog now. And there's a beautiful moment in Teresa's episode where she breaks down and cries and starts talking about how when she first became a mom, she didn't think she was up to it. And she was seriously thinking about taking her life. And, um, and this listener, was really, really touched by it and listens and re-listens to her episode for inspiration when she feels overwhelmed. So for those of you that are Patreon uh, donors, you should check that out. It's it's pretty awesome. And those of you that are Patreon donors, it would be awesome. Um, we're, uh, we've taken a, a little dip with uh, people being donors because I know some people, they'll sign up uh, for a short amount of time, but uh, it helps keep the podcast going and we could definitely, definitely use the help. Um, and you can do it for as little as a dollar a month, but enough, uh, enough of my begging uh, about the surveys. There's a beautiful, happy moment um, where uh, coworkers support someone who's struggling. Uh, there's a great, happy moment of a couple who uh, re- connected with their communication and re-energized their sex life. And obviously this this interview with Courtney, I'm, I'm a big fan of. Uh, I got this email, speaking of emails, from uh, a woman named Emma, and she writes, Dear, how have you been? I know it has been a while since we last talked or saw one another, so it's probably real random to hear from me, L-O-O-L. Not sure what that means. Um, maybe her nickname for me is Lul. I think it has been around eight years now, and I just find some old pictures from high school memories. Um, I, well, I'll get back to that. Um, I have recently finished my career, and I try to find a job. What about you? 
we must see each other soon so we can talk about the old years. I hope to hear back from you. Really, I want to know where you, where have you been all this time and tell me more about yourself. All my best wishes, Emma. I am ashamed to admit, but I am having trouble placing sweet, sweet Emma's face. And I, I am racking my, I know it wasn't from English class. Um, but she, there's something that she knows about me because she knows that I love looking at old pictures from memories. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever looked at pictures from memories, but what you do is you write down a memory, then you take a picture of it, then you sit by the fireplace and read it. And then you get up and you write down your memory of reading it. You take a picture of it, you go back to the fireplace, you read it, and you just keep repeating this until you fall asleep by the fireplace and you wake up on fire. It's very life-affirming. I will keep you posted on my reconnecting with Emma. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Nopra, and she writes... My sophomore year of high school, I had to take the bus part of the time because I wouldn't receive my license until July and none of my other friends could drive yet. I didn't love it because I get nauseous easily and Millie, the bus driver, liked to take corners like it was the Indy 500. Uh, what a great picture you paint. Millie, the bus driver. And there's no way Millie was under 60 years old. Uh, my grandparents were in town and I was helping her dry the dishes as she was washing them. She was asking me about school and I was filling her in and, you know, the usual uh, grandchild updates uh, and the grandparent talk. There's a slight pause and then out of nowhere, she blindsides me with, do you see much oral sex on the bus? I just looked at her and I was like, hold on. What do you mean? Her response was, I hear it's a common occurrence, especially in the seats at the way back. At this point, I'm dying of embarrassment. She continues, well, I hear they also have this thing where the guys line up by the girl like it's a choo-choo train. And at this point, I call on my grandpa and dad for support. My dad was like, mom, where did you even hear about this? Grandma, I was watching Oprah. Well, how is this for a segue into our sponsor, BetterHelp? I think Grandma could use a little therapy. Uh, I'm a big fan of BetterHelp.com, uh, online therapy. Uh, I I talk about it every week because they're our sponsor every week, and I'm so grateful for them. And I love what they I love what they do. Uh, I love not having to get in my car to go to therapy. Uh, I love talking to my therapist and. Video therapy just totally works for me because you, you get the eye contact. And uh, if you don't want eye contact, you can do it by just audio or you can do text or live chat, whatever you choose. Email. Um, so go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental so they know you came from the podcast. Uh, fill out a questionnaire and they'll match you up with a betterhelp.com counselor and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if it's right for you and you need to be over 18. This is uh, a quote that was forwarded to me by somebody, a listener, 
that found it on Instagram. And the quote is by uh, Emily McDowell. And she writes, finding yourself, quote, finding yourself is not really how it works. You aren't a $10 bill in last winter's coat pocket. You are also not lost. Your true self is right there, buried under cultural conditioning, other people's opinions, and inaccurate conclusions you drew as a kid that became your beliefs about who you are. Quote, finding yourself is actually returning to yourself, an unlearning, an excavation, a remembering who you were before the world got its hands on you. Nobody's Nobody's cool cool and everyone's scared. scared. And And we're we're just all in in this together. There was no joy. Overeating. Apathy doesn't leave any marks. Numbing out. Physically. I wish that I was a girl. Panic attacks are so violent. Rudderless. They were mistaken for seizures. Shot coke in my neck. The TV was talking to me. Romantically, I am becoming the woman that I feared. He said, there's going to be a second hunger strike. Nothing's real. And I'm going to die. Sometimes I just go, hey, I can't deal. Just beyond broken. I went out. You have to, like, fantasize about the person I'm with. I'm gonna stop it. Fucking someone else. It's okay to be different that i don't want to die is a miracle to be weird i'm so happy to be here i'm gonna help you one day people are gonna love you for that it takes a lot of work to heal it's hard being a weird kid sometimes you don't realize how fucked up something was until you feel the opposite of it you will just never see what you're not looking for i didn't know how to break up with him so i just transferred schools (laughs) (laughs) i'm here with courtney hotman it's going so well already. So, listen, just let yourself out. <laughs> I'm here with Courtney Hommeister. Uh, so much anxiety about mispronouncing your name. And I don't know why. You, uh, I told her before we started rolling, if you lived here, we would so be best friends. Um, we already are. You know, reading your book, I am so excited that, that you're here Um Courtney has a book called Okay, Fine, Whatever. It's funny, when your publicist pitched it to me, just based on the premise and the title, I went, I know. (laughs) She's my kind of lady. (laughs) Um, And share the premise of the the book with the... Um, Yeah, so the book is called Okay, Fine, Whatever, The Year I Went From Being Afraid of Everything to Only Being Afraid of Most Things, and which is kind of a spoiler, but... Um, you know, you might as well put the spoiler on the cover, I think. Um, so it was really about a year. I have anxiety. I have clinical, I have generalized anxiety disorder and OCD. And, uh, and so it was about a year in which I tried to teach my anxious brain that everything was going to be okay by doing things that scared me. Um, and then, uh, realizing that I didn't die, um, and then I, I wrote about them. I, and it, I had a column called The Reluctant Adventurer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, but because I'm anxious, I didn't jump out of planes or bungee off of anything. I did things like I went to a sensory deprivation tank. I went to a professional cuddler. I went to, I, I got legally high at work. I went to a fellatio class. There was a lot of dating stuff in there too. Mm-hmm. I kind of went on this massive dating binge that year. Dated some polyamorous <clears throat> people. I did. I dated some polyamorous married dudes. 
um, and went, to, uh, of course, as you do, to build your own burrito night at a sex club with one of them, which was <laughs> that that one was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the I th- I think that the mo- and the most shocking part of the night was, as you know, uh, they ran out of tortillas, <laughs> and I have to tell you, I was really angry about that. Like I was, I it took me a while to get over that. It was really the most shocking part of the night for me. For sure. Yeah, it's like if you ran out of cilantro, understandable. <laughs> That's Tortillas. It's fucking build your own burrito night, yes. right? It's not rice and beans night, right. you know. And it's just, it's the most important part of the the burrito. So I was not I was not happy. Yeah. Uh, what I what I like too um, in your writing, other than your sense of humor, which is great, is <laughs> your vulnerability, and you talk a lot about. Um, your body issues. Mm-hmm. Um, you have struggled with your idea of what your body should look like. Yeah. Um, sounds like pretty much your your whole life. Pretty much my whole adult life. I yes. mean, I think that I remember the first time, you know, I ever kind of looked down at my thighs and thought they were fat. I feel like I was maybe nine or 10, you know, and they weren't really, of course, it's that thing where you look back at pictures of yourself. And, you know, um, there's that quote, I, I wish I was as fat as the first time I ever thought I was fat. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was an athlete, you know, I, what I was looking down at was my soccer shorts, you know, I was a soccer player. Um, but it's, you know, I just think it's so pervasive, mostly, not mostly with women, but very much so with women. Um, it's just, it's so pervasive in our culture. And my, you know, my mother was and is, she's probably, she's five, two and maybe a hundred pounds. She's been completely tiny her whole life. Her entire sort of matriarchal lineage has been women who are kind of obsessed with weight um, and I have been obsessed with my weight, but I went a different way. I went a different route <laughs> and I just, you know, that's and how I, you rebelled. Exactly. <laughs> um, but I, no, I've just struggled. My dad struggled with, with his weight. He was a, you know, he was kind of a bigger guy, but he was in the military and in the military, you have to actually once a year do this physical fitness test. And so he would, uh, he would just eat nothing. You know, he would just eat uh, red meat and and cottage cheese for a while, um, at once a year. Like it was his own version of you know whatever the keto diet or whatever is out right. there now. Um, so I really that I went the the sort of heavier route, like my dad. Share some of the comments that you heard as a kid and a teenager. And a- um, well, I wasn't like, I think that I was like a, I think I was a size like 12 or 14 when I was in middle school. And then in high school, I was right around a 14. And I was, I actually, it wasn't when I was a kid that people said appalling things to me. It was more, um, when I was, when I was grown up and I lived in New York City. That's where, um, I actually, I was crossing um, Thompson Street in New York. I had just gotten to college and um, I was walking across a crosswalk and um, this guy was coming toward me and he just looked up at me and he said, you're fat, but I'll fuck you. And it was just the most concise, horrifying, (laughs) like it was he did such an amazing job with so few words, you know, I mean, I, it was horrifying, but I, you got to hand it to him, right? Like 
He, he just, goes by the name the hateful poet. Exactly. He just he had his moment and he took it, and it it, it, it was yeah that one. What did it feel like? It you you, you really, remember sensations like in your in your body, and it also what you thought. Well, I think that it's really it's interesting because I I think that um if you hear someone telling a story about someone verb sort of verbally assaulting them, you know, I think that there are people who are just like, Oh, come on. Like they just said something to you. Are you a child? Like sticks and stones, right? Um, no, like when it taps and- into your negative self belief, it is atomic. Exactly. Like I, I, you know, because I, you know, this is also in the book, but because I was, I was a virgin until I was 34. And, um, so like people would call if someone's joking around and they call you a whore, that's a hilarious, that doesn't, that it just bounces right off of you because it's ridiculous. Right? Like, but yeah, exactly. If you feel terrible about your body and someone taps into that, Verbal assault is an, is absolutely accurate. I felt assaulted by that person because you're just walking around living your life and you don't expect someone to just reach into the back of your brain and find the black goo that is the worst part of yourself and just slather it all over your body. And that's mm-hmm. what that feels like. Yeah. And I, I, I've, it, everything happened to me that happens to you when you're, you know, when your lizard brain <clears throat> when your lizard brain feels like it's being attacked, I you get you get that uh, sensation in your chest. It's ting like your chest starts tingling. You start being not able to breathe as well. You don't have as much space for your breath, um, and your ex- my extremities tingled. And I. I, you're walking, but you're not walking. It's that situation yes, where you do get a little you're floating. Exactly. Like you're just not connected to the world anymore. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just, you know, um, there's, there's something, there's something, um, I think ultimately it's very sad to think about who that person was and who those people are who feel like something happened to you. That's so terrible. Someone hurt you so much that you want the rest of the world to just be down there with you clearly. So I should feel terrible for him, but um, I don't Um, (laughs) I don't think any of us do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so there was that guy, uh, one of my favorite New York comments. um, Sorry. One of my favorite New York comments was, um, was this guy who, uh, he, I think, I think he was just standing on the side of the road as I was crossing the street. I'm just never crossing the street again. I'm just not going to. If I go to New York, I'm just going to stay on one block and just walk around it. Um, but he was like, he was like, damn, look at that ass. I know you can cook. I'll marry you. <laughs> like, <laughs> like that was just kind of, that was kind of sweet in its own way and, you know, terrible, but that's, it's just to, For someone who can't imagine saying something to someone on the street about their body, to me, it's just so far beyond. I just, I don't, I don't understand the mentality that someone believes that that's anything that they. For For the person who is nervous about confronting a friend who is continually late, (laughs) the idea of saying something so horrible to somebody is yeah. is just like what planet are you on? Yeah. What planet are you on? Yeah. And they're on the planet of I 
I feel pain and I want other people to feel pain. It's also known as the planet fuck face. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and we're sending a spaceship there. The, the most hated astronauts we were sending to planet fuck face. Yes. And, and there's no control center because we don't really care what happens to them. Right. <laughs> right. I don't want to explore planet fuck face. I don't feel like there's anything there for us. No. You know? But I'd like to, I would like to send all of those people who <laughs> make comments about people's bodies up there. Read uh, an excerpt from it. Pick, I dog eared a, a couple of things, but I also uh, want to leave it up to you to read something that you feel can. Um, let's see. Um, you had you dog-eared the um the chapter about the f- the flotation tank or the sensory deprivation tank. Yeah. Um I think it might have been the thoughts that you were having in your head. Um Oh, be- because it was just to me such a great snapshot of your anxious mind. Right. And and I also related. Yeah. Um so yeah, so I was in the sensory deprivation tank, um, and it's just pitch black. You're in this highly salinated water that allows you to float. Um, so you don't, you could, you could fall asleep in there and it would be fine because you're gonna, you're gonna be floating face up. Um, and what's supposed to happen is that it's supposed to shut down your lizard brain so that you can have these epiphanies. Sorry, I, yeah, I didn't I took have a CBD any. pill. What's and that? And I just had, Oh, CBD? Yeah. Um, uh, it's great. Oh my gosh. We can, we should talk about CBD. If you, if nobody's talked to you about CBD and anxiety, taking CBD pills? I've never heard of CBD. I've heard of CBT, <clears throat> cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. No, CBD is, um, it's, it's a non psychoactive. So it's T, there's THC in weed, right? Mm hmm. But then there's also CBD and CBD is what like they give to um, people with epilepsy to help them stop oh. having seizures. And CBD also treats anxiety. Oh, how ironic that it comes from pot, which is exactly. like one of the most. So it's it's obviously the non THC right. component. So you don't get high. But yeah. is that also the one that they give to people who have nausea or um uh, pain, chronic pain. I feel like there's THC in the stuff that they give to those people, but but yeah, like I think that people use CBD. Like there's salves, there's tinctures, there's pills. You can um I, you can vape uh CBD. It's just super douchey. I'm kidding. It's not. <laughs> um, <laughs> but only if you're wearing a fedora. Exactly. Exactly. That's the only way that it's douchey. No, it um. Uh, it's, I mean, I highly recommend it. And, you know, the problem with taking, if you take, you know, there, there are lots of, uh, antidepressants that work for anxiety, like mm-hmm. Prozac. I mean, you know, there's a long list, right? But I haven't been able to find something that doesn't make me either exhausted or actually more anxious. Mm-hmm. Um, but CBD is magical. Oh. I found that, yeah, it's, um, and, and the, and also like if you, if you were to take, um, a Xanax or, um, Ativan, a Benzo, I don't know if you've ever taken those. Not a good long-term plan. Oh, no. So addictive. And you can die from withdrawal of oh, those. Oh, 
Really? Oh, yeah. I hadn't heard that. In any case, like, uh, so, uh, those for me, they screw up my memory. I get a horrible hangover the next day if I have to take them prior to a performance or something. Um, but CBD really has, for me, it has no side effects. That's fantastic. Yeah. So, and if you take it, if you take it in high, in high dosages, it can just knock you out, just make you exhausted and want to nap. But if you can find the right dosage, um, it's just this wonderful, just, you know how, um, I mean, anxiety is just this edgy thing, mm-hmm. right? And it just sort of smooths out the edges a little bit. So it's not going to work if you have like massive panic attacks before right. a, uh, at a performance uh, in front of a shit ton of people when the stakes are super high. But if it's more of a low stakes situation or even like I was taking it every day for a while. So... I, yeah, I, I mean, obviously, I'm not a doctor, consult your physician, but, uh, yeah, I look, if you have anxiety, look into it. I, I've had a lot of luck with it. That's great. It sounds to me like what I feel when I watch a documentary about serial killers. You start getting. No, it just takes the edge off. (laughs) There's something so oddly comforting, I think, because the, deepest recesses of my negative self-beliefs are that I'm a bad person. And when I watch something on a serial killer, it's like, oh, let's grade life on a curve. I passed. That's fantastic. It's the same. It's this. I have the same thing with watching hoarders. If I watch hoarders, I think, you know what? I've got my shit together. I just, I've really, my house is completely organized. Um, Yeah. So same deal. Yeah. But see, I watch a serial killer documentary and I get anxious. Mm. But that's my OCD. So intrusive thought OCD um, uh, makes you think that you could be a serial killer. Right. So, also, being a, a f- female, you might approach it differently since it seems like the majority of victims of serial killers are tend to be female. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you need to live in a state where uh, weed is legal to get CBD? Well, so um, you can get pure CBD. And in that case, you don't because there's nothing psychoactive about it. There's no actual sort of the there's none of that. Uh, the, the stuff that's that that people want to smoke weed for in it. Um, but I what I've heard is there needs to be at least trace amounts of THC in it in order to activate the CBD. I see. So, yeah, so you probably, you know, there, I mean, there, there are these devastating stories about families who have actually moved and left other children because they needed to take their child who was having all of these, um, seizures to a state where they could actually get, get, get THC and CBD, um, which, you know, is freaking insane. Yeah. You know, this is why medical marijuana should be legal in every state. Yeah. And it's, I love too that they're they're probably driving past drunk drivers yeah. on a three day meth run. Yeah. <laughs> going yeah. To, well not that meth is legal, but mm-hmm. uh you know. And I certainly have no problem with alcohol being legal, but come on. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, and so I guess, yeah, it's difficult I think, like if you're in a twelve step program, if you know, if you're in recovery you probably can't take that CBD that has the small bit of THC in it. Um, but I know that there are differing levels. Like people have different thoughts about that. But. Yeah. I, my, my thought is if you're not doing it to get high and it helps you, that to me, you know, your sobriety is your sobriety. I yeah. take Adderall because it helps with my depression and I don't 
take it to get high. I have no desire to abuse it. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of times I don't even take my second dose and I don't give a shit what anybody, um, thinks because my psychiatrist prescribed it. I resisted it at first and then I talked to somebody else who was a sober person and they said yeah. it was the only thing that helped them with their treatment resistant depression, which is what, what I have. And it was mm-hmm. a game changer for me. So fuck, fuck what anybody, what anybody thinks. Oh know? yeah. Cause I know. Yeah. The reasons I'm, I'm taking it. Yeah. Um, I am smacked out of my mind, <laughs> but that's to take the edge off the Adderall. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's working out super well. It really is. Yeah. It really is. <laughs> uh, read if you would. Okay. So yeah. So this is me in the tank. Uh, and I just sort of talked about how my, how I had, how I'd actually managed to sort of relax my body finally, because I sort of live with my shoulders. I wear my shoulders as earrings most of the time. Um, once my body was relaxed, I had to deal with my brain. It was still running at its normal pace and it was all over the place. Some deep thoughts, some as shallow as the Epsom salt infused water I was floating in. Why do we have earwax? What are those weird colored lights you see when your eyes are closed? I wonder if people masturbate in these things. Should I masturbate? Would it make the experience better? Am I even in the mood? I don't think I am. Am I rejecting my own advances right now? <laughs> what does salt water do to a vagina? Will mine look will mine look younger after this? When does your brain ever rest? Even when you're asleep, it's busy making dreams. That seems like a bummer of a job. My job's kind of a bummer right now. Should I have just left when I stepped down as host? What do I even bring to the show anymore? What will I have to be proud of if I leave? Am I even proud of my work anymore? If I don't have kids, what am I leaving the world? I need to get grape tomatoes if I'm going to make that salad for Marie's dinner. (laughs) Why do we have organs in our body that can just be taken out without any consequences? Those are all my I thoughts. think that the the, the grapes uh, for the salad might be my favorite one. And who doesn't think about other people masturbating in the sensory deprivation tank? Right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's I think, probably one of the biggest reasons that people wouldn't want to go is because they think yes. other people are probably masturbating in there. Um, and I would imagine... I'd imagine that they are, but they do this like filtering, this massive, you know, three, three time filter situation. Yeah. So, but it's a guy with a skimmer who's also masturbating, which so because, is because the cleaning up of other people's masturbatory effects just makes him think of masturbating. So he has to do it. Yeah. I get it. They've I tried totally... so many people out at that position and everybody does it. Yeah. Yeah, so it's yeah, it doesn't really help. They just keep getting more and more splooge in there, which <laughs> that's like a thirteen-year-old boy term. But <laughs> sorry about that. Oh, I so knew that we were gonna get along. Like two pages into your book, I was like, "She is the female me." <laughs> oh God. <laughs> yeah. Um. Could be. What was I was gonna? There was something I was gonna ask you about oh fuck what was it i don't know it'll it'll come back to me at a completely inopportune uh, <laughs> oh i know what i wanted to, to mention uh courtney used to be the uh, host and producer of livewire which is a show uh distributed by 
Public Radio International, yeah. and I think PRX now. I think they're yes. combined. And um, Luke, you stepped down, and then Luke Burbank, who is uh, a friend of the show and a great guy and super funny, mm-hmm. um, and had me on as a guest on, on Livewire, then took over as as host. Mm-hmm. And so you had a lot of mixed feelings about your decision to step down because it was there was too much anxiety in doing it but then you also missed the positive reinforcement of sure. doing a good job and yeah. et cetera, et cetera. yeah um sorry <clears throat> i'm super phlegmy today i don't know why um yeah it was um it was i was so lucky to have that job and i had it for 9 years and um and I, so I, it was this amazing, like, I felt like it was this amazing sort of MFA program, this extended MFA program. And because I got to talk to these writers and directors and musicians that I admired so much, and I got to ask them how they did what they did. And I, and there was that aspect where there are these extraordinary talented people who start to see you as a peer. And that, I think, for someone who who has imposter syndrome, for someone who, you know, is constantly waiting for them to realize that she doesn't belong, that is really important. It was very important to me um, because I didn't have the self-respect um, that I needed to get to get what felt like respect from these these people that I so admired. And that I think was the biggest thing that I missed. And then also, you know, so this audience caused me a significant amount of anxiety, which is why so I stepped down from the show because I had a a massive two day panic attack. And it had been led up to for years where I had what I used to call my dread ball. So we had Saturday shows, and on Monday, we had the writers meeting and my dread ball would show up and it would be sort of golf ball sized. And then it would grow into sort of, you know, you know how anxiety kind of lives in your chest and it mm-hmm. expands out so that you just can't find a breath. And um, so by Saturday, I sort of talk about how I was inside of it. Then I was in a giant hamster ball of anxiety and just sort of rolling around the world in it. And, um, it became untenable, right? Um, you know how it is actually to host a show mm-hmm. and you're sitting there and you've got to be present. You've got to hear what the person is saying. You got to f- ask a follow up question. And if you're struggling with anxiety, you can't really take in information really well because your brain is just flying. It's got all of these thoughts going on in it and it's blocking other stuff because it's busy as fuck, you know? And so it was really, it was an untenable situation. And, but when I lost it, I think when I stepped down, um, I saw what I had lost and, and this, there's this strange thing with people who want to perform and want to get their work out there in a public way because the audience is for, and they have anxiety. I, I write about, um, Elliot Smith. He struggled with, with anxiety and, um, and took his life. And yeah, I think it, it probably, yeah, it was a huge part of that anxiety and depression, of course. Um, but the audience is for you 
this proof that you're worthy of something, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you, they're, they're like this weird security blanket for your self worth, but at the same time, they're a, an anxiety trigger. Yes. It's this, the strangest relationship. It's kind of like a first date. Yeah, you know, it is. Uh, yeah, a, a first date that, that, that goes really well, right? Yes, or doesn't. <laughs> well, th- yeah, that's the thing. Because I've had those. It, it, oh, yes. sure. Yeah, yeah. Th- it depends on the audience, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah, oh, that's, oh, I mean, a performance where they're not with you is just, I mean, because it, it is like a first date, right? But, but multiply it by the number of people who are in the audience, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not just being, you know, <laughs> being rejected by that one person who has a weird tooth that, you know, you don't yes. care about that right. much anyway. It's like an attractive person saying, you're fat and I wouldn't fuck you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't get, I don't even get the good part of that insult. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, it, it was it was a it was a huge thing to lose and i and i and i and i it's funny because i think for a while i was working for the show i stayed working for the show as head writer and and co-producer and i really think that for for a long time i think luke felt like i wanted my job back he never said that but i think that he had a i think that he had that feeling and i never wanted that job back i mean i i knew what it had done to my body it totally I felt so different after I stepped down. It was so strange to not just have that constant buzzing in my chest, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so I was, I was massively relieved, but you cannot want the job back, but also miss all of the amazing things that it brought you. Yeah. And, I mean that, that first night it, where you just broke down and cried and yeah. ran out of the after party. Yeah. Um, I would imagine that would have made Luke think, uh, <laughs> Just, right. Well, I don't know if he, it'll be interesting. I don't, cause I'm going to be on the show. I'm going to be on the mm-hmm. show on, uh, in, in like a week and a half. And it'll be really interesting to see if he, if he talks about that, if he asks about it. I don't know if he saw me. I ran and hid in the bathroom because I, I saw him and he was sort of, I, I had been at the producer's table that night. And just sort of producing the show. And it was actually really great. I actually enjoyed the show for the first time. I got to watch it and, and, um, and it was funny. And of course he's, he's wonderful. He's amazing. He's amazing at his job. Right. So I really enjoyed it. And it wasn't until the after party where I went and I saw him, there was a director on the show and I saw him, he was sitting in the sort of banquet at the bar and he was talking with the director and a couple of other show guests. And then there were also some audience members sitting there and he was sort of holding court. And I just burst into tears. I immediately started how crying. You, how could you not? Because that's like yeah. everything as a performer we dream of is it went great. Exactly. The guests like you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're just enjoying your achievement and yes. and success. And, the and you know, this thing always happened where the audience sort of attributed their great night to me, even though there were there was this whole host of people involved, right? And so you're missing that, too. Yeah. And it, I had this moment where uh, I, and I sort of, I think that I turned my, what I, because I was trapped in the bathroom because I was crying yeah. and I was, and, and I stopped crying at one point, but then your face, you know, like oh, yeah. it, like, you know, I, it sort of looks like a map of Bolivia and, you know, you just got all this, like, you know, and you, your eyes look like a frog. And, and I thought everyone's going to know, but I managed to figure out a way because to, to kind of run out 
without him seeing me, but the other producers of the show, you know, who were also my friends had seen me already. And this, the Jim Brunberg, who, um, is this incredibly sweet, big hearted guy who was one of the producers of the show. Um, he sort of caught me outside. He saw what had happened and he caught me outside before I went to my car. And, um, oh, he, and he said, he said, they still love you court. <laughs> and I, and I said, <laughs> and first of all, I hated that I was a person that would need to hear that. I just hated that, that I was that insecure that he would, that he would feel like he needed to say that to me. And I said, they don't even know me anymore, you know? <laughs> and I hated that I was a person that would even say something like that. But that's what I was feeling at the time. And that's what I lost. Um, which is so funny because it was a bunch of strangers. What I had lost was a bunch of strangers that I didn't know and who didn't know me. But it was obvious. I mean, I'm obviously still upset about it. Like it was really hard. And, and I think that part of the reason that it was really hard was that I had no one to blame for that but me. Right. I couldn't, my, my producer, my producer said to me, we'll do whatever you want to do. Like after she knew about the panic attack and we had had Luke host the show, she said, what do you want to do? Do you want to go to therapy and figure this out? We will do whatever you want. But it was me who said, I can't do this anymore. And it was because I couldn't control my brain. And that was so frustrating, you know, because I'd still like to be doing it. I'd still like to be talking to all those people. You know, you, you do it for a living. It's to me, it was the most, I felt so honored to be able to get inside people's brains and, and to hear, you know, to hear all of, um, all of the things that affected them and all of the things that they brought to their work and all that stuff. So, um, anyway, <laughs> like, um, yeah. So that's kind of what that night was all about. And I'm obviously still like super upset about it. <laughs> yeah, you can't see, but Courtney has had tears rolling down her face for the last three minutes. <laughs> I'm also just like a giant wuss. Like I, I'm a crier. Um, but. Yeah. And I should have assumed, like, of course I'm going on mental and sappy arms. Of course I'm going to cry about something. So anyway, you know, you're like the Barbara Walters of podcasts. <laughs> I think. <laughs> I have a slight speech impediment. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, you don't. Anyway. Um, <laughs> what is another excerpt that would uh, be good to read? Um, let's see. What do you have dog-eared? Um, you have the, <laughs> you have the strip club dog-eared. Um, oh, and the cuddler? Uh, do, do the, uh, the yoga strip club. Oh, the... Or what, whatever it's called. Um, or you want, or, or the swinger buffet. Oh, God. Uh... And Let's then see. the cuddler one. Um, so do you do you care which part? No. Um, no, whatever you feel like has a, a combination of uh, your inner life and your humor. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, I'll let me. Yeah. I'll, so I went. I went. Um, 
I had this guy that I like super liked um, who had been flirting with me for about a year. Um, and uh, and he was super not interested in me, but he just kind of flirted with everyone. But he invited me to Casa Diablo, which is, um, I believe it was the world's first vegan strip club. <laughs> Only in there, Portland. I think. Only right? in Portland. And there's a second one now. Uh, but, and it's, it's hilarious. The second location is, um, is right next door to the Acropolis, which is known for their steak, for their great steak. <laughs> and these two, seriously, there is a massive battle between these two strip clubs. Like they try to steal each other's really good strippers. It's hilarious. Oh my God. So anyway, um, this, I was at Casa Diablo. <clears throat> Which is this vegan strip club. And, 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 and by the way, I want to give a shout out to, uh, Luke. Mm-hmm. Because he's just, uh, he's an awesome guy. And, oh. I, and I know he listens to the show. Oh, okay. And if I were him and I were listening, I'd be like, ah, uh, there wasn't enough recognition. I need to know that I'm okay <laughs> and that everybody loves me. So Luke, we love you. Yes. And he's yes. laughing right now. <laughs> Yes, we, yeah, he's, he's so talented. And the, I mean, the fact that he, that night that I had the, the panic attack, he was supposed to be on the show the next day just as a guest. And Robin, our producer called him and said, you know, Hey, can you host the show? And he came on and it was a three hour show. We recorded two shows in a row each night and he just came in and it was amazing. Yeah. Like you just, just. Any everyday person just could never do that. He's just a super talented person. So, yeah. hi, Luke. Anyway, um, <laughs> so, uh, so is it did so that it was the it was the strip club that make you think that made you think of Luke. <laughs> <laughs> and he's another person that we hit it off immediately. Yeah, it was it was as if we had known each other for twenty years, and just. Yeah. The sense of humor, our worldviews, our self-loathing, our, <laughs> you know, insecurities yeah. and grandiosity all at this, all at in one mm-hmm. gorgeous ball of, of hilarity. No, he, I mean, and when you, when you talk to him, well, anyway, yeah, he's okay. just very, he's one of those people and, and he's one of those people who kind of is totally fine just being self-deprecating and, and you would think that, you know, as the, because he is so natural on stage that he just has no, I, I would assume watching him, oh, he just has no, you know, he has no issues. He has, you know, he's just, you know, he, the, he's just a, such a natural. And then, you know, and then he gets off stage and he tells you, you know, oh, I was thinking about, you know, this weird thing that's going on with my hair right now. Yes. <laughs> like for, you know, so he's completely relatable, right? Um, okay. So, uh, I, uh, yeah, I'll, so I'll just talk about, uh, I'm just going to start reading uh, about Casa Diablo. Okay. Um, if you wanted to sit at the rack, you had to put a $2 bill in front of you for every song. So we went to get our stack of twos from one of the bartenders, all of whom were also topless. In the same way I find Halloween disconcerting, is it fun or appalling th- that my urgent care nurse has a witch's nose on right now? I found it strange to have a topless woman doing things like making change and flipping a cocktail shaker. It was like the old Playgirl centerfolds when the photographer had apparently caught the oiled up hunk fixing an old Chevy or fishing with his tackle out, so to speak. The scene was supposed to be sexy just because the guy happened to be naked. But for me, nude oil changes and typing drink orders into a tablet aren't sexy. Sex acts are sexy. 
I knew my reaction was unusual, especially since every one of the women in Casa Diablo was stunning. The majority of them were in the suicide girls vein, elaborate artistic tattoos, Betty Page haircuts, and perfectly toned healthy bodies, all of which sent me into a complex mental cat's cradle of assertions and rationalizations. Me. Jesus, they're gorgeous. Feminist buzzkill me. You don't get to decide they're gorgeous. What's gorgeous anyway? Muscular and tiny? Fuck you. Me. Well, I live in our culture, so yes, I've been socialized to think that, and gorgeous isn't a bad thing. Feminist buzzkill me. You're objectifying them. Me. But they should be able to do whatever they want with their bodies. FBM. Right. But they're being judged by everyone here, so the power dynamic that should tip in their favor tips the other way. In most of these people's minds, they're sluts. Me. Yeah, but the actual power dynamic is that men leave their homes and sit literally dumbstruck, dumbstruck, dropping hundreds of dollars, while women they're not allowed to touch shake their hips a bit in front of them and maybe get on their laps. If aliens landed and saw this dynamic, they'd think women were worshipped as gods, which they kind of are. Feminist buzzkill me. Gods who make 80 cents on the dollar, you mean? Me. Jesus, you're horrible to hang out with. (laughs) It is exhausting for me to go out with me. (laughs) It is so fantastic. What, What an encapsulation of how we feel about desire, you know, being sensitive to other people, wanting to be politically correct, but not give in to being coddling. Yeah. Yeah, it's a real... I don't know. It's a real struggle. There's there's so much... There was so much that I struggled with... Um. As a feminist writing this book, you know, where, uh, because I have so many body issues and it just pisses me off as a feminist. Like, stop it. Stop it. Because it's so, it feels anti-feminist, you know, to, to hate your body because you're fat, you know? I mean, it is, it is anti-feminist, you know? I mean, but it's, but it's also the truth about my experience, you know? Um, so, and that, that is, that's a struggle for me. I, I do believe that women should be able to do whatever they want with their bodies, but I also know, I also know a fair amount of sex workers and I know what they've been through in their lives and that a lot of them have, have struggled a lot and they're, they're, sometimes it's a reaction to what, you know, doing that work is a reaction to what they've struggled with. And what's happened to them. And so it's, you know, and because we, we don't live in a vacuum, you know, and, and, and there are people who, who judge them for doing what they do. And so it, it just feels. It's so complicated. It's extremely complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Read the, uh, cuddler thing. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, Start. I, I, th- I think I have a dog-eared where I wanted you to start, where the actual um, cuddling kind of started, and just as, if you would set the stage for what the vibe of li- this was like and what your feelings about this were were like. So yeah. So one of the things that I did was to go to this professional cuddler, and um, her name is Samantha Hess, and she has a she actually has a storefront in Portland called Cuddle Up to Me. And, um, I, I think that my, my editor had sent me an email and said, do you want to do this? And I said, absolutely not. I absolutely don't. And 
the thing is, I'm not a person who doesn't like being touched. I'm a person who is actually a little concerned that she likes being touched too much, um, that I'm too sort of physically needy. And that's what I learned kind of during this dating binge. I, you know, I had been, I, I had been a virgin until I was 34. And then when I, you know, started having sex, I was a huge fan. And, um, <laughs> do you get the newsletter? Just, <laughs> I do. I do. Yes. Yeah, sexaholics. Um, but I, but I, and I don't think that I, it wasn't a, I, I don't think that I had a pathology around it. Right. Um, but I was just, a, I was a big fan and just wanted to kind of try a lot of stuff. And, um, and, uh, and but but then once I once I broke up with that I was with that person for a couple of years in my first adult relationship and um and then after that you know I because of my, I I gained a bunch of weight after I broke up with him or he broke up with me and um and as soon as I had gained a bunch of weight I just didn't want anybody near my body um I just felt a tons tons of shame around around my body and so uh I didn't get touched ever you know i mean and it's funny because i was talking to this guy at a party about going to the cuddler and he was this guy who just you know he was like well that's just that's ridiculous that's so dumb he's like i get you know he he had been divorced um a couple years earlier and he was like i get touched all the time like my my grandkids you know my uh essentially he was talking about his family hugging him it is not the same it is not the same. No. I mean, and it's, it's lovely. It is lovely having your family hug you and that's great. But having someone who wants to touch you and who uses touch as a way to show their affection for you, it changes the way that you feel physically and emotionally. And I mean, they've, they've done studies, right? I mean, it, it, people who are not touched for long periods of time, um, it makes them anxious. It, it, uh, it makes them actually avoidant a lot of times of relationships. It's to, it, they get depressed and their self-worth is lower. Um, <laughs> you just <laughs> described me for the last three years. Uh, yes. It, yeah. It's, and, and it's terrible. And I, it's weird because I'm not sure I'm, I would have to read more about it to know how much of that is just physical and how much of it is the fact that we live in a culture where being paired off is supposedly the ultimate in self-actualization. Somehow proof, if you're paired off, it's somehow proof that you're fine. Right? Yes. And, and, Go ahead and finish your thought. No, I, okay. I mean, I, I just wonder. I just yes. don't know. I mean, I would imagine that it's a combination of both of those things. You know, as you were sharing the, you know, how it feels great to hug people that you love, it, it I, I totally understand what you're saying, the difference between that kind of affection and the kind of affection where it's not necessarily sexual, but it's a, a long, uh, touch and it's I hate this phrase but it's the only one I can think of it, or this term is that person is holding space for you which you don't get when you um, generally hug a family member or an acquaintance it might be an extended hug which I love doing I'm always the other person is usually the one Who lets that, go first. That, that lets go first Um and I'm probably over hug, but it's, it feels like, um, 
just so natural and the ultimate way of letting that person know that I really care about them and it feels good to, to me as well. So yeah. that to me is the, is the difference, um, between the, Hey, it's great to see you. I love you. And let's curl up on the couch and, you know, yeah, just hang. Yeah. And what what do you mean by holding space? I mean, I I know generally what it means, but what does that mean for you? You're generally if if I am, um, God, I even hate the term cuddling, but if I'm doing that with someone, and I've done it a couple times with platonic female friends, um, and it's always been me asking for Mm it. Um, is it's I will also share about what I'm feeling, so Mm -hmm. it's very therapeutic for me so there's there's talking going on there's talking going on and i check in with them every bit of the way because i want to make sure i'm respecting their boundaries and that it's something that they also um want to do but there have been times where it's been like you know a favor from from somebody and they seem totally okay with it they're just not in the needy space that I am. And I hate even saying this out loud because it feels pathetic. But part of this show is showing your your embarrassments. No, I think that when I got part of the reason that it scared me so much to go to this cuddler, the idea of it scared me so much was that I had seen how the Internet had responded to her and all of this. I bet snark. lovingly. I bet lovingly. <laughs> supportive understanding yeah it was awful and i and share some of the some of the comments oh i mean it was uh i mean oh god it it, uh, yeah i I wrote them the book it was it was just like yeah people just said uh that it was pathetic you know um uh and again it, it like the person when you were at the crosswalk mirroring our deepest self hatreds and fears right yeah. Which is what the internet is for. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, uh, oh, so samples of the comments to the stories about Samantha include 60 bucks an hour and I'm supposed to keep my pants on. No, thanks. Uh, someone else said, it's really alarming if you have no one to cuddle with for free. And simply, this sounds pathetic. And I read those comments and I, the problem is I related to the people who went to her. Right. Like, yeah. and I didn't want. I didn't want those comments thrown at me, I think. And but, you, but you were doing it as an experiment, which um, yeah. to me is less ammunition for the mean part of the brain. For sure. I mean, I think that, but it was less, I think that it was certainly, yeah. I, I mean, I've gotten some nasty internet comments and I certainly didn't want those, but it was more the fact that I knew that I needed that. You were afraid you were going to like it and have to share that. Um, yeah, I mean, I didn't, I think that I just knew if I'm going to write about this, I'm going to have to talk about, about how I feel and how terrible it feels not to be touched. And, um, I mean, I, you know, there, there are, I mean, there are chemicals that are released in your body when somebody touches you in an affectionate way. And I, those are prominent in me, you know, I, um, it's, I, I was with this guy prior to, I was dating this polyamorous married guy and he was the king of the afterglow. 
Like, and he was good. Like he was, he was good in bed. He'd actually read book. He'd read this book called she comes first, which is very much appreciated. And, um, and that was great. But he did this thing. Like we had like, we'd been, I think it was our second date. And we ended up just like having that sort of quick over the cover sex in my, Mm -hmm. my, uh, in my house. And, um, and immediately after we were lying there and we were just chatting and he started just running his hand up and down my forearm in the most amazing way as just as we were chatting and it felt unbelievably intimate, far more intimate than the sex had felt. And it felt like exactly what I wanted out of a relationship and um, was that kind of physical and and that kind of physical intimacy that weirdly made it feel emotionally intimate which it wasn't at all we had nothing in common like i think he golfed like i (laughs) (laughs) i i just (laughs) i you know he he yeah he, he he worked in tech and and we just we didn't have anything in common but he was very sweet um but just that that feeling that i had when he was when he was doing that it was it was it didn't make any logical sense you know the kind of the kind of that he would care about you that he would enjoy your company and that he would want to express affection for you without having something in it for him of course that makes no sense you fucking nut job well, thank you. <laughs> no, that's that's that good point. Point to you. Uh, yeah. I think that's why it felt so awesome. There was nothing in it for his gratification other than to say, "I really like this," and and thank you, and you're awesome, yeah. and I want to show you affection. Well, and I think that that I talk about that in the book, too, where I feel like, um, you know how there are people who are just more generous with money than others. I think Samantha Hess is one of those people. And I think that this guy also, Joe, the polyamorous guy, was this person. There are people in the world who are just willing to give you affection without knowing whether or not you deserve it from them or not. (laughs) You know, so I think that he was he was just extremely generous with his and any time that we went out he was just always you know touching me you know we would when we were watching a movie he was just constantly like holding my hand and kind of rubbing it with his thumb the best it's the best yes. and and there are people who i'm sure are listening to this and, is, and are just like gross i hate it don't touch me i get that too yes. but i am not that person i'm, I'm not that person yeah. either and i love that you said uh the he doesn't know whether or not that person deserves affection. Yes. It might be the most fucked up thing I've ever heard that there are people who don't deserve affection. The, the worst serial killer, whatever that, that person getting affection is not a, a thumbs up to what they've done. It, I don't at, know. At, I, I mean, think I, don't, I, everybody, don't think Trump, I don't think Trump deserves affection. I do. Honestly, really? I do. Ugh. He does because most people are fucked up because they don't have enough affection in their lives. I would or agree with that. Or their personality was formed because of a lack of affection. And there is no date at which that should be shut off. They, they 
don't deserve it from anybody of their choosing. Yes. But they deserve it from some person with a strong stomach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, no, I absolutely agree. Like I, I'm, I'm sure that, that, that the president, you know, he didn't, if you look at his, mother and father they don't seem like affectionate people and that may have been what's caused um you know the global yes. collapse that and we're not about an to excuse see. But for his behaviors at all no 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 not at all but i see what you're saying i mean i think but but that's the thing it's like you imagine these people who yes deserved affection when they were i i yeah des- i guess deserving of affection is obviously um <laughs> a little it's a slightly judgmental term to use and, and, when you're talking about that and honestly I think we all know that you were talking about yourself in, in, in that, in that moment. So I'm certainly not taking you to task. It's more yeah. of, of something that I, I think is in the meanest part of so many of our brains and it needs to be addressed for us to let go and accept love. Yeah. Well, it's, it's very, it's very hard, um, I think for us to, um, uh, to think about, um, I think that a lot of us think, oh, I'll get in a relationship when I've fixed all this stuff, <laughs> right? When I'm, when, you know, and, and, um, you're probably never going to fix all this stuff. No. I mean, I think. No, um, you're not. We are, but you're not. <laughs> It's, I will. Hope. I will never fix all this stuff. But I think that I definitely have this. I have have had this sense for most of my life, right? That that there. These are the reasons why I haven't been in a relationship because I have all of these things that are broken about me. And if I could just figure out how to fix all these things that are broken, and what I've realized um, fairly recently, which is quite sad, um, is. That it's, I don't have to fix all of those things. I have to fix how I think about yes. all of those things, yes. right? Like I just have to, I have to accept, you know, and there's this idea of I can't accept all of these things about me because if I accept them, I'll never change them. Right. And that's a big thing about your body, right? I can't accept where I am right now. You know, it would be, and, and so I need to be shitty to myself about what my body looks like right now. So I'll because, change. Because we think that's discipline when in exactly. reality it's exactly the, the, the opposite. And that doesn't mean being kind to yourself does not mean you're throwing discipline out the window. Yeah. Um, and when someone is expressing love towards you, it's loving back to take that love in as uncomfortable it is as it is but to let that person know they're wrong is not kind to them yeah but i'm not sure exactly how to handle it in that situation <laughs> i understand it i've experienced mm-hmm. both yeah both being able to take it in and not being able to to take it in so mm-hmm. uh, read that that oh. uh, part from where she she did the affirmations <clears throat> Oh, yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, so, yeah, I, I tell this story about how she, um, the, so Samantha had told me that she had just sort of like, uh, she had had some body issues, but she really studied physiology and body mechanics and she just recognized, oh, it's sort of mathematical. So she didn't really have any judgments. And so, uh, I say, Jesus, I said, I can't even imagine what that would feel like. Why, she asked. Because no matter what I weigh, I said, I never stop feeling like a fat girl. What's wrong with being a fat girl, she asked. 
Oh God, everything, I said. It means I'm lazy, unhealthy, and have no self-control. Do you believe all that, she asked? No, I said, but yes. Those messages are everywhere when you're fat. Some people can escape them, but they seem like magicians to me. I told her about losing all the weight after my gallbladder surgery and that I gained some of it back and I was struggling again. I told her how much of my self-esteem came from whether I was eating healthily or unhealthily and how my level of food intake defined whether I was a good or bad person, that I could save a toddler from a burning building, but if I was eating a cruller at the same time, the two acts would cancel each other out. Okay, she said, moving her head off my chest. We were lying on the bed and I was sort of Sure, her head was on my chest and my arm was around her at the time. We're having this conversation. Um, we're going to do something. Sit up for me. Oh, shit. My stomach turned. I didn't want to move, but she was so nice. I moved. She had me turn slightly to the right and adopt the standard little spoon position to her big spoon. I'd never been spooned by a woman before. I'd recommend it. Women are soft and pillow-like. She lay against my body, one arm wrapped around my waist, her left leg resting on my right leg, her limbs devoid of tension, like a marionette with no one holding the strings. We're going to do a few affirmations, she said. This is the worst thing that's ever happened to me, and I drank a fly through a straw in sweet tea once. <laughs> okay, I said. Silence. Maybe I'd gotten a reprieve. Maybe she'd fallen asleep. I am amazing, she said. Oh, Jesus. I was hoping that wasn't the affirmation and that she was just telling me something she was super proud of. <laughs> I am amazing, she repeated. I'm amazing, I said. That wasn't so hard. I am sort of amazing. I'm here, aren't I? What non-amazing person would do this against her will? None. I'm enough, she said. Ugh. Am I enough? I haven't filed my taxes for 2012 yet. I may be going to prison, so it feels like maybe I'm, she prompted, I'm enough, I said, then took a deep breath. I'm beautiful, she said. I stopped breathing. I couldn't say it. I'm beautiful, she said again. And I was crying. A fucking affirmation is not making me cry. More than any of the others, this one caught, caught in my throat. As much as I've always believed that affirmations were full of shit, here was something they obviously could do. Show me as clear as day what I believed and didn't believe about myself. The tears from my left eye were now flowing into my right eye and then onto the pillow. Undeniable tears. I could remember maybe three or four times in my life when I'd felt pretty, and this wasn't one of them. But even if I had felt pretty that day, I would, have ne I would never describe myself as being beautiful as if it were a persistent state for me. I'm beautiful, she said. She sounded like she believed it, but she was beautiful. I'm beautiful, I said, my voice breaking. So humiliating. Stop crying during your cuddle session. Stop it. I had a trick to get myself to stop crying in public situations. I would imagine the first chestburster scene from Alien. It had worked for me when I had to read Shakespeare's sonnet 116 at a friend's wedding. She had me repeat the whole series of affirmations until I could say them without crying. Finally, thanks to Alien, I could. I can't say she made me believe them, but she made me believe that she believed them about me, which was almost as good. When the moment was over, I wanted to say something to the effect of, we shall never speak of this again. <laughs> but that seemed inappropriate. I hoped that cuddler client privilege was a thing. As the session wound down, we lay there quietly and she ran her fingers through my hair. It wasn't exactly the same as having a lover or friend do it. But I have to say, it wasn't that different. And then I, this is interesting. Um, I talk about how I have female friends who go to get massages so that they won't sleep with a douchebag because they just want to be touched. Yeah. <laughs> and... Like, I think that 
this would be so much better because this is what they're actually looking yeah, for, you I, know, is this kind of touch. So, yeah. That is such an amazing passage. Oh, and thanks. so I think there's so many people that relate to that, listening to that. And I am one of them. I shared with Courtney before we started recording um and I, and I hadn't even mentioned it on the podcast because I'm embarrassed. And I've shared all kinds of shit, but I paid a professional cuddler a, a, like three weeks ago, and I felt so pathetic doing it, but I so just want to feel that that touch. There was part of me also that was like, well, you know, then I can know what this is like, and I'm always open for trying new things on the podcast. And she was great. She, you know, we had deep conversations. She revealed a lot of of herself. It was it was totally non sexual, and and it it felt really really good because I'm in that place where I, I've been dating, you know, I, my marriage broke up a couple of years ago and I had one brief relationship, but it was long distance. And, and since then I have been, and I'm sorry, I'm talking about myself so much, but I feel like I have to, I have to share this because it's pertinent. And I have had a couple of instances where I know that the woman wanted to sleep with me. And I thought about what the conversation would be like afterwards. And I did not, it was not a conversation that I, conversing with with them was not something that felt, um, I don't know, organic. Mm-hmm. To me, there was just, and it's not that there was anything wrong with them. There wasn't that spark. There wasn't that I want to look in their eyes while I'm touching them. And that was never me before. Never me. But something has changed. I don't know if it's all the work or whatever. And I went on a date a second bumble date and I want to take it slow. So I didn't kiss her on the first date. And on the second date, I'm like, I'm not going to kiss her. We started and I I made them during the day because I didn't want there to be any temptation. And again, this was never me in the, in the past. And we were at coffee and she asked me what I was thinking. And I said, I'm thinking about wanting to kiss you, but I want to take it slow. And she was shocked because like she said, I didn't even think you were that interested in me. I was like, well, I asked you on a second date. How can you not think that I'm interested in you? Because that physical stuff is so important. Yeah. It's proof. Yes. It's proof that you're interested. Right. And, and then I said, our, do you feel the same way? And she said, yes. And then like my adrenaline started going and 
I, we went back to her place because mm-hmm. she lived walking distance. And I was like, okay, I'm going to take it slow. And I knew I was lying to myself. <laughs> and so we laid down, um, on her bed and we just kissed and, oh, and awesome. we just kissing somebody and then like, and I can't believe this is me saying this, but just kissing somebody and looking in their eyes. It felt so fucking amazing. And then there's a part of me going, you don't even really know her that well. But I know that the first date that I had with her, I felt a connection. I felt like it, there was something inside her that I wanted to um connect with just beyond the the physical and and then at one point i was like okay i'm gonna take my shirt off (laughs) and it's so vain but i had been uh laying in the sun and i looked tan and i was like i think i might not look terrible and and she complimented me on on my chest and then and this is really what i wanted to share is she just began lightly just taking her fingers and just stroking my chest while we looked in each other's eyes. And I could not believe how amazing it felt. And we did wind up, you know, going much further than (laughs) that. But that was the part, honestly, that felt the best In, in, in terms of um something emotionally in me i felt so seen and i hadn't felt sexy or attractive in so long it i have i have had to eat sugar to fall asleep for a couple of years now oh i that's yeah that seems and so I, backwards and i know everybody thinks it's backwards yeah and I think the reason is, because I don't crave it during the day. Yeah. And I think the reason is, is I don't want to feel that loneliness when I go to bed at night. And I slept like a baby. You didn't have to the, the, have the sugar? No. That's amazing. Yeah. But it scares me because it's like that. that is there something wrong with me that I can't sleep without having that affection because I had it we weren't together yesterday yeah and I had insomnia last night so yeah that that worries me but I wanted to share that because a I like talking about myself but b I think it's important for people to share the stuff that we think is cliche and especially when someone like me has come in, come from a, a a past of being a pig, being an objectifier, having my walls up, being checked out uh, during sex, that we can change. All it takes is three solid years of deprivation. <laughs> oh, my God. That's so easy. You make it sound so easy. <laughs> Well, I don't you think that it's I it, you 
this show, you do so much work just on the show, right? And you're reading these books and you're talking Mm. to all these psychologists and you're really, I know it's awful, but you're actual as you're actualizing yourself, right? You're, I think that you're evolving. Yes. Psychologically. And so that I, I, and, and there are people who, if you want to have sex with no connection, go at it, right? Like if that's good for you and that works for you, yay. Um, but I think that for some of us, like for me, I had that sort of empty sex for a while and I really enjoyed it. I liked the exploration. It was interesting to me for a while. And then your conversation, you, you saying, I, I started to think about having sex with them and then I thought about the conversation I'd have to have the next morning. And I think that's what so many people sort of evolve to, right? It's this point where they're just like, I don't want to have to deal with that. It's not worth it to me to have the right. sex, to have to deal with having an awkward conversation with someone yes. that I don't really connect to. That's miserable, yeah. you know? And so they kind of weigh those two things. And I, that to me, if you are a person who is looking for a, a, con- a physical and emotional connection that feels to me like an evolution and it, I'm sure it has to do with kind of the work that you're doing. You've just recognized that about yourself, which is amazing, which is great. Um, it's interesting to me that I think you talk about the, the actual kind of talking that goes on during cuddling. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that, that most people really see that, that desire to cuddle as as just a need to physically connect, connect with someone but i absolutely and i hadn't really made this mental connection until you were talking about it but so much of what became what made the experience of cuddling with samantha a positive experience for me was that i i was uncomfortable and i just started talking to her mm-hmm. right and so once we actually started having this conversation then the physical part of it actually became more satisfying and less awkward absolutely because yeah. it's an extension of the emotional thing it's yeah a, yeah it's yeah. to me i have i have never and and i've as i shared i've i've uh, you know God, I hate the term cuddling, but I know. you know I've watched movie with uh, movies with a, a couple of f- female friends, and it was totally platonic. And um, you know, there we would talk about our feelings, and that was what made it feel so good. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it feels good certainly to lay your head on someone's shoulder or put your arm around them while you're watching a movie, but to let go of that ick inside you um and have somebody else you know receive it and not i don't know shame you or run away or or whatever it feels nice yeah it feels nice well i mean i i i think that um i mean i i say in the book that i think that um falling in love is is half just falling in love with the best parts of someone but then also seeing them forgive the worst parts of you and yes. that's what you fall in love with right it's it's ha- it's to me it's about 50% you know of that and that's part of what intimacy is right is that we're revealing you know when when you f- when you actually reveal your vulnerabilities to someone and your shame or you, your humiliation that's intimacy you know yes. telling someone that you had an amazing day yesterday and that you killed it at the gym that's not vulnerable and it's not, it doesn't create a connection. We weirdly connect with each other through our vulnerabilities and recognizing our own vulnerabilities and other people. 
And I think that that's, that's when those moments happen is when we're, when we're physically close is, is when we tend to have a lot of those conversations. And, um, and for me, like that, that is the, that's what I remember. I mean, this is what I remember from all of the beginnings of my relationships, right? Is those moments when, when your whole body is an erogenous zone, right? You're sitting next to them at a bar watching a band and all you can think about is the part of your arm that's touching their arm, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, and the tingling that's happening, right? Oh my God. Yeah, it's yeah. the best part. Holding hands with her on the walk from the coffee shop to her place was amazing. Right? <laughs> yeah. Amazing. It yeah. had been so long since I'd done that and it just it just felt so good. You know, and then every, like every block we'd stop and we'd, and we'd kiss. And, <laughs> right? and That's awesome. Yeah. It was just so great. And, and the thing that I want to say is all of this started with me going to support groups and talking about the stuff I didn't want to talk about and having people surprisingly not only accept me, but love me and then their sh- them share their stuff with me. Mm-hmm. And then I began became more confident and comfortable having eye contact. And then mm-hmm. I would, now I'm able, I'm so excited to be able to bring this to a romantic relationship. And so if anybody is out there listening and you feel like you're just broken or whatever, that's what I used to feel like. And it's not to say I still don't have a ton of shit to work on, but it is. I never thought I could experience a connection between my junk and my soul. Right. You mean your junk, your genitals and your soul yes. or your, oh, okay. I yes. thought you were talking about yes. like the bad parts of myself. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. And, and it's very, very exciting. And by the time this episode airs, one of us will have stalked each other <laughs> and I will be able to talk about the restraining order. So that's how I can't let something nice lay there because right. I'm so uncomfortable with being opening myself up to criticism or failure. No, I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, you talking about like, cause this, that's what people do, right? When you go to a 12 step meeting, like that's what people, this, I believe what's powerful about those. And I've only been to a few of them. Um, but it's the stories, right? It's people telling their stories yes. and stories are just the most powerful thing in the world. Like, um, have you, have you read Mandy Lynn Catrone or any of the 36 questions stuff? Mm-mm. It's freaking fascinating. And she, she wrote a book. She would be great to have on the show. Yeah. Uh, she's, she lives in Canada, I think. But, okay. um, so she wrote this, this thing that blew up for the New York Times called, um, I think it, the, the title it was something like ask these questions to fall in love with anyone. And it was based on the psychologist in the 70s did an experiment with people where he created these 36 questions and each one of them got more and more intimate. And you were supposed to ask each other these questions and answer them. It took hours and then just look in each other's eyes for four straight minutes, which would be unbelievably difficult, even with someone that you really love. It's so awkward. And um, we actually ended up doing that on Livewire with a couple and they ended up falling in love. And really? living together for two years. Yeah. Um, but the, the idea of that, and, and this psychologist, he had a couple people from his study who fell in love. Mandy did it she, with, with someone and she fell in love and was engaged. Um, and, but the thing th- that is so obvious to me is I think 
that if you truly hear someone's story, you can fall in love with anyone. Yeah. Because they're Not necessarily telling, romantically. Um, exactly. But you can have love for that person and exactly. feel a connection to them. Yes. Yeah. If they reveal their vulnerabilities to you, like any, I just think that we, pe- seeing people's vulnerabilities is, I think, like seeing a puppy, you know? It's just like, because they're this, they're this sort of b- ball of goo, right? Yes. And, yeah. you know, and, 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 and I think that we just all can, f- we all fall in love with other people's vulnerabilities. Um, and it reminds us that there are places of safety in the world because it's so easy to just shut down to survive and forget. No, I should let some people in. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people I shouldn't even be near, but there's a lot of people that I can let in. And it's really finding the technique of testing the waters and saying, okay, that, you know, that little thing I shared was seemed kind of, um, not received well. It made them awkward. I'm not going to share anything more with that person and they'll remain in acquaintance at, mm-hmm. at best. Yeah. And that is, you know, but judging vulnerability by the first two people rejecting it is, you know, like saying I don't like baseball because two guys did steroids. It's you know. it's so funny that you say that. My um my my mom, so she was married to my dad for twenty seven years, and she might hate me saying uh anyway, you I can tell you to cut it out. Um <laughs> she was married to my dad for twenty seven years and then after that she reconnected with this guy from high school and was with him for about five years and it didn't work out. And both of those people, uh, my, my father was bipolar and, um, the second guy had some pathologies and she just told my brother, she was like, I'm done. I'm done. This was when she was, I think maybe mid fifties. And, uh, and my brother was like, why? She's like, I'm just not good at this. I'm not good at this. And he was like, that's like trying on two pairs of shoes and saying (laughs) these shoe things just aren't for me. (laughs) You know, like, no, like you just such a great analogy, right? It was a, exactly. It was a great analogy. And I think that they're, you know, this shit is hard. It is so hard. And, or if the shoes don't last, last the rest of your life saying shoes don't work yeah. no you still got to enjoy the shoes and maybe yeah. you learn something about shoes that you'll make a better choice in shoes the next mm-hmm. time what i'm saying is i have a shoe fetish exactly well and you looked fabulous in them for a while and they became painful eventually <laughs> yes. and you had to take them off yes. you know yes like, it's a it is it's a really good analogy um, but I think that it's funny because, you know, we watch all these movies and we just think, oh, yeah, the happy ending is when you finally find someone. And, and it lasts you know, forever. And it lasts forever. But, I, yeah, it's like, no, the work starts. As soon as you're with somebody, that's where the work starts. Because if you, if you don't fix your shit, like, it's going to be miserable for you. It. And oh, how to God. communicate it. That's what I'm – I'm not very good at that part. It gets easier. Okay. It gets easier and support groups have helped me have difficult conversations because I believe there is no chance for intimacy without a willingness and a diplomacy for having difficult conversations. Yeah. And, and that repairing those, my therapist told me, can actually strengthen your, your relationship and it becomes the foundation for it, the way you come back together. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I pick fights. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> 
Courtney, thank you so much for just, you were as awesome as I had hoped you would be. And your book is called, Okay, Fine, Whatever. And we will put links to that and all your stuff. What, uh, where can people follow you? Um, I'm Weisenheimer on Twitter. Okay. And my website's just CourtneyHalmeister.com and just Google my name however you think it might be spelled and it'll hopefully Google will. <laughs> it'll, yes. Yeah, it'll come. It'll up. come through. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a pleasure. Ah, oh, she makes me laugh and uh she is doing great. Got an update from her um because we recorded this as I said about 4 months ago and she's doing yeah, doing very well. And by very well I mean uh still panicked and exhausted. <laughs> Uh, I want to give some love to our sponsor. What if your worst nightmare was real? In Mind's Eye, the first fiction podcast from the Parcast Network, homicide detective Kate McClay is plagued by nightmares. So she enlists her radio journalist husband to help get to the bottom of her horrifying dreams. And in her search for an end to her nightmares, Kate fights against psychology, science, her own family, and even a serial killer. The scariest monsters are those hiding inside our minds. Mind's Eye is great for people who love true crime podcasts, mystery novels, and audio dramas like Limetown and Homecoming. It's brought to you by Parcast, the storytelling team behind hit shows like Serial Killers, Cults and Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. This six-episode psychological, psychological thriller premiered December 24th with new episodes on Mondays. So listen today by searching and subscribing to Mind's Eye wherever you listen to podcasts. That's M-I-N-D apostrophe S E-Y-E. Or visit parcast.com slash Mind's Eye to start listening now. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash Mind's Eye M-I-N-D apostrophe S-E-Y-E to listen now. want to also give a shout out to our sponsor, Madison Reed. Ring in the new year with a new hair care routine from Madison Reed. Madison Reed is a hair color reinvented, giving you gorgeous salon quality color delivered. <laughs> Let's try that again. Madison Reed is hair color reinvented, giving you gorgeous salon quality color delivered to your door for less than 25 bucks. Remember, Come on, it's 2019. Enough with the outdated box color or the time and expense of a salon. It's crafted in Italy by master colorists. Madison Reed is professional hair color you can easily do at home. It's multi-tonal, ammonia-free, that's huge, and made with ingredients you can feel good about. Uh, the feedback from people I know who have tried it, including listeners, they love it. Not only is the quality good, but they talk about how easy it is to use and how it's great that there's no uh, bad chemicals in it. So, what do you want? Quality? Done. Convenience? Done. Affordability? Done. Find your perfect shade from Madison Reed. Get an expert color consultation or take the color quiz at madison-reed.com. You guys, the listeners, get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit with code MENTAL. That's code MENTAL at madison-reed.com. Let's get to some some surveys. This is a happy moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Mayor Bees, and he writes, 
It's really hard for me to commit to things, but I realized I'm getting better on that front. I start started listening to your podcast in 2017 in the middle of one of my worst depressive episodes, and it inspired me to pursue therapy and helped me start the process of the fucked up shit that my parents had put me through my whole life, whether they realize them at all or not. Things aren't perfect now. It's a forever journey. I'm out of therapy and really want to start back on a regular routine of that again. This past year, you've been in the background to my paintings, my walks, my washing dishes, and doing laundry. After a year of listening to your podcast, being hit by a car when crossing the street to get lunch isn't a fantasy anymore. I check both ways and remember that I'm not alone. Thank you. That really, that's so awesome. I personally, I check one way. I like to mix things up. I look one way. I hope for the best. And that keeps things interesting. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself MB. She is in her 30s, identifies as gay, was raised in a stable and safe environment, that remains to be seen. Uh, she's never been sexually abused or emotionally or physically abused. Darkest thoughts. When I was suicidal, the only reason I did not kill myself was because my family convinced me that it would hurt them irrevocably. So as a result of that, there have been times when I am at my most depressed that I fantasize about my family having all died in a plane crash so that I could just kill myself and get it over with darkest secrets. I'm a recovering alcoholic, three years sober, and I was fired from a job at a pediatric hospital for showing up to work drunk. I don't know what kind of terrible person endangers sick children, but apparently I am one. Um, it's Alcoholism isn't about being a terrible person. It's about not having the right coping skills to deal with the feelings that make you want to drink. And so it's not a moral question. It's a sick, it's a sickness thing. Alcoholism is a sickness and it's up to you to treat it. That's where the morality comes in. Once you know the truth that there is help for it, then it becomes a moral thing of whether or not you, you seek help. Um, so don't think of it as you're a terrible person endangering sick children. Think of it as you're a sick person endangering terrible children. <laughs> you're not a terrible person. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Um, and I've got a really question, raised in a stable and safe environment. I mean, that's possible, but uh, I don't know. Let's continue and then uh, we'll let the listeners decide. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I haven't given it a huge amount of thought because I was raised in an incredibly conservative religious household where sex was rarely discussed outside of medical terms. Just fantasizing about sex with women kind of seems like enough, lol. I think it would be nice to orgasm with a partner vaginally without a vibrator and then spoon afterwards. I would like to be the little spoon. Spooning is the fucking best. Spooning is the best. God, it used to make me just like, oh, how long do I have to put up with this until... And it's amazing when we when we change and we let go of our anger and our shame and our discomfort with ourselves. It's amazing 
how great it feels to be comfortable with somebody else. So, yes, spooning. I like to spoon after we fork. I know that has to have been a joke. Widely done by people with low comedy standards. I wouldn't be surprised if somebody took me to comedy court for that joke. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to tell my parents that I am gay. Well, that to me is a great example of a an environment that is not stable and safe. If you fear being your authentic self in front of your parents, that is not a safe space. And I'm not saying your parents are bad people. I'm saying that children in hospitals are terrible. What, if anything, do you wish for? I want to marry a woman, someone emotionally stable and logical and handy around the house, maybe an engineer. I'd like to have a wife and a house and a garden and a dog and a baby and a job uh, and a job I don't hate and some savings in the bank. I'd like to fold laundry and watch Jeopardy together on a Friday night. I'd like to travel every year or two and walk through the farmer's market holding hands. I want to have a boring, happy life and never have to worry that my wife will leave me. You know what is a a great place to get to is that that have you, your partner adds to your life but you don't find yourself worrying about them leaving you that you know you will be okay whether you're with someone or without someone and that's easier said than done but um there are certain things that really only we can give ourselves and um have you shared these things with others? I have shared that I am gay and want a baby with my therapist, and she was very supportive. Two friends know and are also supportive. No family members or childhood friends know. How do you feel after writing these things down? A little bit sad and scared that I am 35 and running out of time. It is never it is never too late to be the person you want to be and create the life you want to be. Because as we change, what satisfies us change changes. And the things that I thought were so important to me in my 30s that, that I thought, if I don't have this, I will just, what's the point of living? And it's so much of, of happiness is just about meeting life where it's at and letting go of preconceived notions of what it is that we need to be happy externally. But... um I really encourage you to speak your truth about who you are. And then whoever doesn't stand by you, that's people that aren't worthy of being in your life, in my opinion. This is a happy moment filled out by Julia. And she writes, we were uh, she's talking about her... her dad and uh, and her. We were walking back from a pumpkin patch. I was rolling my pumpkin down the hill that led to the car. You weren't far behind, walking with your pumpkin propped up on your shoulder. It was a warm afternoon, and I asked you what my prospects of stopping and getting an ice cream cone would look like. You said it looked pretty good. Then, without a word, you caught up to me and grabbed my pumpkin, placing it on your other shoulder. Dad, I can handle it, I said. I need you to focus a minute, okay? Okay, I said. See that hole in the fence over there? 
Go grab us a few more pumpkins, he said. You don't have to, but those green pumpkins look kind of cool, don't they? They did. I quickly slipped through the fence as you kept watching for passing cars. A few minutes later, I ran back out with two very lumpy green pumpkins. Totally worth it. Now run, he yelled. We ran the rest of the way back to the car as fast as we could with four pumpkins laughing the entire way. That's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. I should mention that she wrote this from jail and she's six years old, but it is. Now, those are, those moments, I mean, she is, let's see, how, she's in her 20s and that memory is is still with her, that her dad being present with her and being silly and having, and having fun. I love it. I love it. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Rick. He is straight in his 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. He's never been sexually abused. Uh, he's not sure if he has been emotionally or physically abused. My dad had a very short temper. I have a very vivid memory from when I was about five or six. I was just learning to read and my dad was reading a book with me. I kept mispronouncing certain words. My dad grew increasingly agitated and visibly frustrated. This made me more anxious and I kept stumbling on words. Eventually, my dad grew so angry that he threw the book on the ground and screamed at me. I would say that that is emotional abuse. Uh, I started to cry. Realizing what he had done, my dad tried to comfort me, but ever since then, I've never felt close or safe with him, only scared. And I'm not saying that your dad is a terrible person. Um, it's not, this, this isn't about qualifying who a parent is. It's, it's about giving weight to the negative self-beliefs that were instilled at us as, as kids, whether it was by somebody else or we did it ourselves. Uh, darkest thoughts. I sometimes think about what it would be like if my wife and child died, what it would be like to be freed of all obligations and just live by myself for myself. It's a super common one that we get in, uh, in these surveys. Darkest secrets. In my early and mid-teens, I collected child porn through internet chat rooms. On three or four occasions in my mid-teens, I had my little brother touch me in the shower. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I don't have any strong specific fetishes, but I'm curious about a lot of sexual experiences. I've had a pretty vanilla sexual history, so I want to try out many more things firsthand rather than just through fantasy and the internet. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to experiment more sexually with my wife, but it's tough for me to open up with her about it. I'd like to apologize to my brother for having him touch me. I think both of those things would be great um, to to apologize to your brother uh, and to open up the dialogue with your life, uh, with your Freudian slip, with your wife about what it is that turns you on. Um, have you shared these things with others? No, I'm scared of being judged by others. How do you feel after writing these things down? It's cathartic, but tough to organize and unload everything I'd like to say. You know, the fear of being judged by others is you can't have intimacy with without going through that, whether it's platonic or romantic. It just, uh, it's a part. It's the risk of having love in your life. 
But the payoff when you do find people that accept you for who you are is amazing, is amazing. This is a happy moment filled out by Charlotte, and she writes, I'd always been the weird kid growing up. I was interested in all kinds of obscure science and history topics, had weird hobbies, couldn't have cared less about pop culture, hardly watched TV. You get the picture. I was never without a detractor ensuring that I knew I was, quote, different or, quote, the weird kid. I got to fourth grade with a teacher who had a colorful reputation. He encouraged those weird curiosities, and we all had them. Everybody had a bit of weird kid in them, and we embraced that and appreciated what everyone brought to the table. First time hearing from a non-relative, kid, you may be different, but you are okay. Self-acceptance came a lot more naturally after that. Twenty years later, we are still close, and he maintains the same philosophy philosophy, that people are different and that's to be celebrated. His classroom is full of the, quote, weird kids, and he appreciates every last one of them. And I imagine if he hadn't felt ostracized as a kid and gone through that pain, he wouldn't have the empathy and the awareness to be there to help those kids. And that's, you know, what is can be so great about having endured something difficult is that then we can help people. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Mockingbird. She is straight in her 20s, um, was raised, hold on, I'll let you know how she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional relation, or pretty dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I have a couple of stories. When I was eight, I had a friend, a girl, a couple of years older than me. She convinced me to go into the forest behind my house, and she would show me what she learned from her sex ed class. She made me take our clothes off and kiss her body. Our super religious families found out later, and I never spoke to her again. I remember feeling a crazy amount of shame. When I was 21, I broke up with my emotionally and sometimes physically abusive boyfriend of six years. I was extremely suicidal and on strong SSRIs, which led me to become severely manic, engaged in risky behaviors, and hypersexual. I slept with over 20 men in just a few months. I went out to a club with a couple of men I just met, and they had a few friends with them that I had never met. I don't remember much. I knew I was already drunk, and who knows if I got slipped something. I still wonder to this day. One of them took my arm and led me across the street to his apartment and forced me to have anal sex. And then he brought me back to the club where I went home with the two other men who took turns with me. Shortly after that, I tried to end my life, but ended up in the psych ward instead. I have never told anyone this because I feel like it was my fault for even putting myself in that situation in the first place. Accepting drinks and invitations from strange men? Question mark. Stupid girl. No, that is a separate issue from what they did. You should be able to walk naked down an alley without somebody accosting you. It, it does not give someone the right to violate you. And and when I say alley, I mean bowling alley. And I hope you wear their shoes. That was such a stupid. Uh, I see so many people beat themselves up and try to find a quote-unquote mistake they made so they can blame their trauma. And that's one of the things that our brains do. And I've experienced that. 
and it is a prison of our own making. And if we don't open up, you know, you said in here that you haven't shared this with anybody, I really encourage you to find safe people to share this with, whether it's a support group or a therapist or a trusted friend, um, because you deserve the compassion and the support that, that we need to heal. It's I can't imagine healing from something like that on our own. I can't. And it's horrible what you went through. And by the way, promiscuity with a lot of shame attached to it is usually a sign that there is some type of trauma going on underneath it. And um, it has nothing to do with who you are morally. Uh, She's been physically and emotionally abused. My ex-boyfriend was extremely narcissistic and insecure. He wouldn't let me see my friends. He would smell my clothes and body when I got home to make sure I didn't smell like another man, but he would consistently accuse me of it anyway. He would turn off the radio every time a song I liked played. He would tell me he liked his best friend more than me. His best friend was also sexually molesting me. He said he only dated me because the girl he actually liked had moved. He called my antidepressants crazy pills. He would get angry at me when I wasn't able to come when he went down on me. Anyway, I could go on and on. I was also raised in a very Christian household, homeschooled all my life. My brother is autistic, so I was neglected because I didn't need attention like he did. My dad is very emotionally distant due to his rough upbringing, and my mom is narcissistic and an anxious mess. There was nonstop fighting in my home, but oh, it's okay because they love Jesus. No worries. Any positive experiences with the abusers? It's complicated. I spent six years with my ex. All his friends and family felt like mine, but I lost them all when I left him. I'm sure I had good times, but every teenage slash early adult memory is tainted by the pain. But if I had not gone through all this, I would never have become so resilient and in a good place now. I'm actually happier now than I've been in my entire life, and it feels great. Darkest Thoughts I remember fantasizing as a kid slash teen about being kidnapped and raped. I'm ashamed and confused about why it didn't sound like a bad thing to me. Darkest secrets, my sexual abuse stories, and that I just recently cheated on my current wonderfully amazing boyfriend. I fear that it's too good to be true. Um, and that, that is something that a lot of people, um, who have had who have experienced sexual trauma that's the way uh that they deal with their anxiety or their fear um we sexualize it and that is not to excuse it but it's to say hey there's something underneath here that's going on that i should look at because there's probably some some healing that needs to 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 take place and so if you really do care about your boyfriend or yourself Go and get help for that cheating because, you know, one of my therapists tells me when your actions are not in line with who you are morally and it's compulsive and there's shame afterwards, you know, that's that's something that means that there's there's something underneath it driving that choice, that compulsion. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I fantasize about being inspected and tied up. 
I'm worried that it's not okay to have these fantasies and it means I'm fucked up. I'm scared to open up about my fantasies with my boyfriend because he might think I'm a crazy whore, LOL. Um, I mean, I've said my opinion many, many times that there are no bad fantasies. There's just the issue of what we do with them. And opening up to a loved one a partner about them can bring you closer together and create, I think, more communication. And it it's it's an amazing feeling when you stand before your partner and they know everything about you and they love you. It's 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 an amazing feeling and it's so much easier to love them and their quirks and etc. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? That you aren't a saint, you should have been better, you were an adult, I was your child, I deserve love too. What, if anything, do you wish for? To grow in my emotional peace. I want to leave my past behind me for good. I am not that scared little abandoned girl anymore. That's so awesome. Have you shared these things with others? Some but definitely not the darkest ones. My current boyfriend has always been supportive as much as anyone could, I think. He makes me feel accepted and safe. How do you feel after writing these things down? Like a portion of the weight has been lifted. I wish I could be as light as a feather. Um, thank you for that. Thank you so much for that. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself, I don't know who I am yet, but I'm not what my mother says. And she writes, my boyfriend and I have been together for about two and a half years now. Lately, we haven't been having very much sex due to a number of reasons, his health issues, my mental health struggles, stress, etc. Last night, though, we really made sex a priority. We talked about the sexy things we wanted to do a few hours before, did all the foreplay stuff, tried something new, and just really focused on being together and listening to each other. We got so into it, and he didn't even bother taking off my thong before fucking me. It was so, so good. And when it was over, my boyfriend gently pulled my thong back into place. It was such a sweet, respectful thing to do. And it was almost comical because of the stark contrast between what we just did and that one small action. I felt so supremely happy in that moment. Like I wanted to scream from the rooftops that I am in love with this man and that he is unbelievably wonderful. It made me forget about the fact that this has been one of the worst years of my life. I can't remember the last time I felt so happy. I felt like I had, like I just had to share this. And then I realized that this isn't exactly the kind of story you can tell someone. LOL. I love it. Those little gestures too, you know, that, those to me, like you can tell somebody you love them, but those little gestures, you know, asking somebody, can I make you, you know, a cup of coffee or can I give you a foot rub? Those are the things for me that where I really feel the love. And it's not that I don't lo- love hearing someone tell me that they love me. It's I need those things in it in addition to that. Um, and then finally, we have a happy moment 
filled out by, I just love this one, filled out by a woman uh, who calls herself, I'm bad at making these up. And she writes, in March of this year, my depression got to the point where I was suicidal and came to the decision that I needed to get help. I decided to check myself into the emergency ward of the mental health facility here because I had tried talking to my doctor and Jeff's kept getting put on long waiting lists. I should also preface this by saying I live in Canada and in a province where mental health is protected by the Human Rights Act, so it is easier for me to be honest about mental health because by law, I can't be fired for having mental health issues. I'm sure I could be, but my workplace is pretty open about that stuff, so I'm doubly lucky, I guess. I was trying to figure out how I was going to get the courage up to go to the hospital and how to let work know, and one of my coworkers asked me if I was okay, and I just started crying in her office. She said I could check myself in ASAP, but I was concerned about getting some of my key holder key holder shifts covered. She said, I'll be right back. She left and came back and said she had my shifts covered for the week. She also, unbeknownst to me, told my close friend who works with me that she had my shifts covered in case I tried to use that as a reason not to go to the hospital, which I totally would have. Another co-worker approached me and I talked to her about the situation and how I was scared to check myself in. She asked me when I was going to do it and then said, I don't work until one that day. I will go with you. On the day, she came to my place at 10 because it was after rush hour and had a few different routes planned in case the subway was too stressful for me. She went into the emergency with me and waited until they admitted me. The hospital part of this is a bit of a mess, so I won't include it here. When I got home after spending the night at the hospital, I took a few weeks off from work. I lived near a bunch of my co-workers and almost every day, someone texted me to see if I needed anything or just to say, hey, I'm taking my dog out if you want to come, uh, if you want to come outside. I'm doing better now, but looking back, I am so grateful for the people I work with and the small kindnesses they extended to me. I think sometimes people don't know what to do to help people with depression or people in crisis. Sometimes little things are so amazing taking the bus with them to a scary appointment or calling them to see if they want to hang out with your dog are so small but so meaningful. So, so awesome. Just those little things, man. Just those little things. Sometimes, you know, I think I need these great grandiose plans if I'm not feeling well. And so often it's just the littlest thing. Just the littlest thing, whether it's self-care or doing something nice for someone else, or just being in acceptance of where reality is at that moment and looking for the beauty. Um, Anyway, I I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you didn't, I don't have a place for you to write to. Um, Actually, I do. Let me see. It's, um, It's admin at gofuckyourself.com. And I don't know if you will get an email back. Most people don't. But anyway, if you're out there and you're struggling, just remember, you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I in know some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.